family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunthy, your host. Looking forward to two hours of improvisational conversation and some very cool music. Maybe even some hot music. Uh, with our illustrious co-host, Ron Van Warmer, we will be talking about uh, an interesting essay from one of our favorite cultural historians and intellectuals that we've ever had on the show, William Irwin Thompson. Uh, Bill died late last year, uh, but his insights live on. And we'll get into a shift he anticipated back in the 1990s that we are going through right now. It's a shift in consciousness. It's pretty darn interesting. We'll catch up on our new website, therightbrainnetwork.org, and we have some special guests. Uh, Dr. Mindy Shaw is back with us. She is a long-term uh, child psychologist and now author. Her new book uh, really is important in this uh, as we're a year into the pandemic. It's about communication between parents and children. We will also have some uh, great music in addition to the Sultan of Sonics, old Gus Mancini, who will be live in the studio. It's almost been a year since we've had Gus live. Uh, that's always great, jazz impresario. And our special guest on the phone will be uh, a real noted Woodstock musician, Larry Campbell, and great country folk artist, Teresa Williams. And she they are married and now touring together and are now featured in a very cool 10-part series on Amazon. Uh, we'll leave some room for surprises because they will find us, we promise, here at the Woodstock Roundtable. He just made that one. <laughs> uh, should we get make a longer intro? I don't think so. I'll just have to talk faster or think more clearly. Hey, Ron, good morning. Good morning, Open Doug. the pod bay doors, how? Yeah. And uh, I think we're, we're sort of the end of winter. It's supposed to be 60 degrees next Wednesday. Yeah. So I think we've made through. We made it through the, uh, the dark of winter. I'm always surprised. I know people get mad at me. How fast it goes. Oh. Because I know when December hits, I go, oh, my God, three months of winter. But, of course, climate change has helped. Uh-huh. It's also destroying the entire, you know, ecological, you know, sanity and destroying the air that we breathe. But other than that, it's uh, it's getting warmer up here, which we like. Yeah. So December and January were actually kind of mild. Not too bad. And then uh, we had one month of real winter, <laughs> consistent yeah. winter, and it's good. We got to rest up a little bit. Um, hibernate. Do our mammalian hibernation or. <laughs> the best we can do with it. And here we are, ready to talk about some cool stuff. <clears throat> now, I just thought of this day as I, I'm, I'm going to be reading the essay, uh, parts of essay of William Thompson's essay on uh, my smartphone, because we don't have a printer here. <laughs> well. Because we are going to be moving in about a month to our new studios 
at this beautiful church on Route 28. Yeah, and I saw some pictures of the new studios. They've got the desks in. Good grief. And uh, by the end of the month, uh, we should be there. And that's going to be cool. That'll be because uh, you were there when we opened this station, as I was, back in April of 1980. Mm-hmm. So that'll be our third studio. <laughs> so it will. Yeah. Not bad. So uh, let me let's see. Okay, here we go. Here's my. So I was just thinking about this today because I'm on my smartphone to read excerpts from William Thompson's great essay that he wrote back in the 1990s, which we'll get to. <clears throat> and I sent it to Ron to print it here. We don't have a printer here. I like to use my printer as little as possible. <laughs> but I'm thinking to myself, well, I don't have to print it. I can read it off my smartphone. Uh-huh. And then I realized, so in other words, printing is almost archaic now. Yeah. But we didn't have personal printers when we were growing up. <laughs> no. We didn't have personal printers in college. Yeah. We are moving so fast. It's a blur. And that's one of the points of Bill Thompson's great essay is that when we're moving at speeds, and we know from the great uh, Professor Einstein that speed is relative. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as objective time and uh, speed time. Uh, or, and uh, time moves according to not only how fast we are going, but psychologically. Yeah. One of the things I wrote about in the new essay, which is up on our website, is, is it's about the yin-yang symbol, the great ancient Tao symbol of the yin yang the black and white with the spiral in the middle right and that on a psychological level when we are in the flow because in a way that spiral represents a certain flow in the universe that on the surface appears like an opposition the black and the white but underneath which cannot be seen but has to be intuited is a unity or harmony. And that has become a theme in what's called the perennial philosophy. What a great phrase. Because we know a perennial garden is one, or perennial plants are those that come up every year. Uh They don't need to be replanted. Right. As opposed to annuals that are planted and then die off, and then if you want them again, you've got to plant new seeds. The perennials keep coming up. Perennial, great I love this, the rhythm of the word. Uh-huh. And back in, in the Italian Renaissance, uh, the term was, was coined perennial philosophy. It was made famous in the 1940s in a, in a book by Aldous Huxley, who was looking to integrate <clears throat> some of the great spiritual truths over the ages with, with modern science and psychedelia. He was uh, a big advocate of, right. of psychedelics. And his book, The Doors of Perception, is where the doors got their name for their band. Um, the perennial philosophy is a great phrase because it refers to perennial, those deep insights that have come out of philosophy and spiritual teachings over the millennia that keep coming back. Well, why do they keep coming back? Because they resonate mm-hmm. at a very deep level. And one of the most enduring symbols of the perennial philosophy is the yin-yang symbol. And so that's what I wrote about in the essay that we just published. Um, and uh, I'm, th- I'm thinking about this because time has sped up. 
Now, why is that? Well, because we have shifted from a predominantly print culture to a predominantly digital screen culture. Mm -hmm. Does it mean books are going away? Uh, They're not. Um, But they're no longer, like it or not, the major form of communication. Just as Marshall McLuhan was writing in the 60s about the fact that he was a reader. He loved reading books. Uh He was a professor of English literature before becoming a communication specialist. But he understood that in the 60s, if you wanted to understand the minds of those of us who created, you know, the the teenagers and, and young folk under 30 who helped create a, revolu- a cultural revolution in the 60s, you're going to have to understand television because yeah. that's where we got most of our information. Like it or not. Mm-hmm. So, and these shifts change the speed of life because the computer, without which we wouldn't have the digital screen, is moving at a faster speed. Its brain, if you will, moves at a faster speed than our brain. So our brain are having to speed up to, to, keep, to up. keep up a lot of this at the unconscious level which is why it's so important to get off the screen on occasions and slow those brain waves down because as listeners know i am a huge champion of the world wide web i love it <laughs> because in the work that i enjoy which is research um it's invaluable yeah. Uh, this came up. I mentioned. I might have mentioned it before. We did it. Um, we 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 do a, a a webinar once a month now. We did our first one a couple weeks ago with mm-hmm. uh, Bob Thurman was our special guest. The next one is March twenty fourth. We'll give you more information about it coming up. Um, and uh, our featured guest on March twenty fourth is a person I've been looking forward to talking to for years because he wrote the most brilliant book on the right hemisphere of the human brain by far that I've ever read, which is uh, The Master's Emissary, Dr. Ian McGilchrist. And we, thanks to a mutual friend in Woodstock, were able to put together a Zoom interview uh, with Ian, who was on his island off the coast of Scotland Mm -hmm. as we were in Kingston at Ron's office having a conversation. And it was so... It's a recorded conversation, but we were doing it live and we're going back and forth a bit. And the one place where Ian and I clearly had a little difference was on the World Wide Web. He's not as in love with computer technology, uh, not computer technology, but but the modern computational age as I am. And we're talking and I he had mentioned something about the fact that in terms of change, we think that in order for change to happen, a majority of people have to think a certain way. Not true. That it's always a small group that has made the big changes in world events. And as this came up, I said, oh, yeah, there's that great Margaret Mead quote about that. And he said, yeah, 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 what is that quote? And I said, it's something about a small... And then he was talking, and as he's talking, I'm Googling on my smartphone. <laughs> I put into Google... Margaret Mead, small group, boom, I've got the quote in like 20 seconds. Yeah. And so I brought up the fact that without the World Wide Web, we, we wouldn't have had that. 
And um, with all the problems that the digital screen are creating, just as TV created problems, radio before it, the telegraph before it, overall, especially as we adapt to it, and our brains take time to adapt to these new technologies. Um, A point that McLuhan made, and this gets the yin and yang again, um, and how what seems like an opposition underneath which is, is unity. And this is, this is a tough one for the, for the rational mind to contemplate. It's a true historic fact that when radio became the predominant medium in the 1920s, mm-hmm. um, think about that. Uh, you had phonogra- early phonographs, right. early movies, Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were still kind of primitive. And now all of a sudden you have a medium where you hear someone's voice who could be thousands of miles away. Yeah. That's mysterious. But so now you have radio. And in the early 1930s, radio was the primary reason why the United States was able to get its most progressive legislation, which was Social Security. Right. Which most of the Congress opposed. But we had a extremely skilled, assertive president, Franklin Roosevelt, who, in the middle of a depression, said... We're going to get people money. We're going to get people working. And it's going to be done through social progressive programs. How did he do it? Because most of Congress was against it. Yeah. He did it with his fireside chats. He had an intuitive understanding of the new medium, used it brilliantly, and had such a connection with people through radio that Congress was forced to go along uh, with a lot of, you know, arm twisting to create Social Security. Yeah. And socialism. The Tennessee Valley Authority and electricity. What's of rural? We'll be speaking to Teresa Williams later, who grew up in rural Tennessee. They had no electricity in the 20s. Yeah. So radio, without radio, we don't get Roosevelt and all that progressive legislation. But get ready for the other side. Without radio, Hitler probably doesn't have nearly the power he gained mm-hmm. because he used radio as Franklin Roosevelt did. He understood it and he became, unfortunately, the most powerful figure, political figure in Germany, in large part because of his ability to use radio. Just as Donald Trump uses Twitter. Twitter. It's just a new medium. Some people get it, some don't. And usually... so. Out of the World Wide Web, <clears throat> we get a lot of noise, a lot of fake news, <laughs> and we, if we choose to, have access to the most brilliant wisdom of the perennial philosophy. Mm-hmm. That's our job, <laughs> to pick and choose. Right. Um, and yet most educators are complaining about digital and this and that and virtual and this and that. And virtual is going to get better. And listen, this doesn't take away from the fact that there's we're, we're in many 
ways mammals. I say many ways, not all, always, because we have a frontal cortex which can get us beyond the mammalian uh, territorial imperative. Otherwise, we'll just keep having wars, which may be the way we keep going or end, or, or, or end the species. But we're primarily still mammalian, and mammals need the sense of touch, right? They need territory. They need, and, and human beings in particular, the reason we became the most intelligent species was through the ability to collaborate with large groups of people. Mm-hmm. Other animals can't do that. They can collaborate brilliantly within their own species, mm-hmm. within their own groups, prides, groups, family units. But we have the ability through empathy, insight, to collaborate on a large scale, without which we wouldn't have had farming. Without farming, you don't have cities. Right. Well, now the collaboration has taken an exponential leap. We did it before, and listen, it was not easy. It took hundreds and hundreds of years for farming to to develop and then cities to develop. Now we're going to be doing it in decades. Yeah. Um, Kicking and screaming with a lot of noise and a lot of angst. Uh, This is why I was, while I understood it, not that comfortable with Twitter banning Trump. Right. I understood the reasons for it, but I don't like it because ultimately we're going to have to work this out by figuring out who we're going to listen to and who we're not. And censoring ultimately doesn't work because who's, who's, the, ne- who's the next entity that gets to censor? And believe me, there's a lot of progressive insight and information being censored. Uh, on both, so it's on both sides, and um, unfortunately, we've seen a lot on the left become just like the people they don't like. You can't say that. We're not going to let that person on our campus. Why mm-hmm. not? You don't like what they say. You don't agree with them, so you're going to ban them. But this is the this is the this is the culture we're in now. It's totally divisive. The Yin Yang symbol. It's about exactly the opposite. It's about how what is an opposition, what looks like an opposition of black and white, is in fact, as Alan Watts beautifully put it, the black and white are not separate. They're folding within each other. Mm. That's why it's a spiral that divides the black and white. They're, they're, they, they're, they're merging in and out of each other like waves. Oh, but we don't like that. We like the white. You know, we, we like the, the and the white is not, we're not, we're not talking genetics here. We're talking the white can represent the male, the, the, the dark, the female. This is primary philosophy, symbolism. Um, the white can be what we can see. The dark is what we don't see. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Who we are is much more what we don't see, the unconscious. Dr. Freud had that one right. About 90, 95% of our behavior is unconscious. Hey, guess what? With all of the brilliant astronomy that we've had over the past 100 years, the best the astrophysicists can tell us about the universe is that it's 99 point some percent dark matter. Why do they call it dark matter? We don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. 
So dealing with what we don't know is part of the game. Um, but we run away from it. That's what we're taught. Run away from it. If you, if, you can't, if, you, if you can't see it and you can't know what it is, let's not deal with it. Good luck with that one. Um, so anyway, um, let's check in with Bill Thompson. Who's, who's, <laughs> who is Bill Thompson? Um, when I think over my 40-plus uh, years doing radio here at Radio Woodstock, talk radio, back in the uh, turn of the, around the turn of the century, if someone had asked me, who haven't you interviewed that you most want to interview, I would say William Irwin Thompson. Hmm. He was, because I'd read his stuff, and, and he's, he's what we call an integrated thinker, an integral thinker, meaning Bill could not only write but speak extemporaneously and integrate science, history, literature, philosophy, um, psychedelic culture, all into one. And um, so he, he, he was called a cultural historian, but he's really an integral thinker. And he was the youngest at the time in the 70s, the youngest person in MIT history to be uh, awarded full professorship hmm. in his like mid-20s. Unheard of. He was that brilliant. But he realized that while MIT was brilliant at technology, it was really, students weren't that interested in what he had to say. Huh. He was into the more esoteric, the more, the unseen, if you will. Mm -hmm. And the, the stuff you couldn't uh, put down in a test. You couldn't put, you, you're right, you <laughs> can only write about an essay. And also, uh, as he said, MIT's main purpose was to produce people who could become president of the United States or senators or, you know, uh, IBM executives and that's not where Bill's mind was at he was he was interested in a transformation of culture that he felt the 60s represented but didn't quite get there mm -hmm. so he leaves MIT despite the fact that he's the youngest in the school's history to become a full professor that takes guts yeah he had a family and he goes to a small unknown college York in uh, outside Toronto because they offered him a chance to teach whatever he wanted to create. Meant less money, less prestige, but that's where his that's what he he needed. He was on became on the same orbit as Marshall McLuhan, Buckminster Fuller, and Alan Watts, who were probably the three most noted intellectuals of the of the early mid-70s. Or of them. Uh, Fritz Perls was one, but three of three of the top. And then, and Bill Thompson was on their level. Mm -hmm. He then started something called the Lindisfarne Association. And this is what flipped me out when I started reading about him in the 80s. Um, he got one of the Rockefellers to fund it. <laughs> and basically, it was in um, Colorado. And it was a university without walls. Mm, I remember hearing about it. At no the time. degrees. But what he would do is he would fly in um, a, uh, 
a particle theorist from physics, um, a spiritual teacher, um, a, an historian, and a, 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 a novelist. And he would have seminars. And people would show up and take courses and this and that, but it wasn't an official college. It was just, it was basically, it was a little bit like um, Epicurus's Garden in ancient <laughs> Greece where um, people could go to hear interesting people talk about interesting things. And he was hoping to help usher in a whole new planetary consciousness. That hasn't worked. That that didn't quite work out. But um, it had a, an interesting run, and um, he 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 also did this in New York, uh, Saint John the Divine. He ran some of these things. Mm. Anyway, no, I didn't know anyone knew who he where he was. He kind of disappeared. Well, he decided he wanted to write poetry, <laughs> and he was holed up in a little apartment in Cambridge, refused to drive a car, <laughs> you know. Um, continued to write a few essays here and there, but it kind of vanished. Uh, because as he said, you know, as much as he admired McLuhan and Buckminster Fuller and Alan Watts and Fritz Perls, he said the first thing they would do when they woke up in the morning is to see who, you know, who was talking about him. Uh-huh. Read the papers. And, <laughs> and he didn't care for that. So he kind of went underground. So we'll continue this story because we're at our first break uh, on on how uh, he first became, you know, came on this show and then uh, an essay that he wrote back in the 1990s, which we think is pretty relevant for today. Uh, on today's show, hey, the, the Sultan of Sonic Soul, who uh, always provides music for us every week, but it's been done on the phone and him sending in digital uh, music for us to play. He's coming in live. It's yeah. almost the first time in a year. I know. So that's good. Very exciting. Um, our buddy Patrick Carlin is on hiatus uh-huh. for a few weeks. He'll be back with us in April, taking a little rest. And um, we have some special guests. Yeah. Dr. Mindy Shaw was with us oh, about four months ago. She's uh, 30 years. She was a child psychologist. Um, she's now retired, but writing. Uh, uh, she wrote a really good book about communicating with kids in the age of the pandemic. Yeah. Pretty very good. Relevant. Yeah, she's good. And then at 830, uh, two great musicians, one of whom well known to Woodstock music aficionados, Larry Campbell and uh, Teresa Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting couple. Very talented couple. Extremely talented. So much so that uh, a well-known director decided to make a 10 part Amazon series based on their touring together. And we'll get to talk about that and hear some great music. All coming up here on the Woodstock Roundtable. It might have been Camelot for Jack and Jacqueline, but on the Chai Guevara Highway, filling up with gasoline. Fidel Castro's brother spies a rich lady who's crying. Over the luxury's disappointment So he walks over And he's trying To sympathise with her But he thinks that he should warn her That the third world Is just around the corner 
the Soviet Union A scientist is blinded By the resumption of nuclear testing And he is reminded That Dr. Robert Oppenheimer's optimism Robert Oppenheimer? <laughs> Who's this? In his song. Uh, this is uh, Billy Bragg. It's called Waiting for the Great Leap Forward. Whoa! <laughs> we are waiting, right? Ah, this is still yeah. the Woodstock it's coming. Round Table. Yeah, it's coming. Gus Mancini poked his head in. We, yeah. This is a bizarre. <clears throat> so, hey, come on in, Gus. Uh, so, Gus pops in, and my first, in the first millisecond, my instinct was Who the hell is he? <laughs> Gus, who? No, he, I said, it's like, he was just here. It I was know. like, like, a year just went by since we saw him here. Hey. How, it's like it's, it felt like ten. When I saw you, it was like you never left. Yeah, I felt the same way. What is that about? Well, it's twenty-three years, right? Yeah, there you go. I guess that's it. <laughs> Absolutely, it's time to do with it. Twenty-three years. This goes back to the um, a little beyond the, the Bill Thompson days we're we're talking right. about. Yes, but uh, great to see you. Same here, and we get to hear you. Yep. Boy, what a second hour we have uh dr mindy show the child psychologist we're going to get a live jazz from gus <laughs> yeah and then larry campbell and Teresa williams oh, are going to join us on the phone great so um lots of good stuff happening but talk about yeah time like i saw gus i said a year he was just here uh-huh. and it was a year ago i'm a little shorter you know <laughs> aren't we all <laughs> Yeah, I got down to like watching things you can't believe. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you one, my last. I'll give you an example. There's a cat whacking a dog on the head because he's farting in his sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and they say the World Wide Web isn't edifying. Come on. <laughs> Made my day. Let's see Saint Augustine do that. Come really, on. The city of God. <laughs> yeah, really. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Um, well, let's get to Bill Thompson here. So anyway, so Bill Thompson <laughs> creates Linda's for in the 70s, and it was a great experiment. And he was a great integral thinker. So, God, he sort of disappeared. So one day, it's like 2002, our show ends, I leave the studio, and there's a woman waiting for me, which could be good or bad. <laughs> um, in this case, it was very good. It was Lori Ilvesacker, who um, is a great... Woodstock, uh, patron of the arts, mm. creator of great stuff. And um, her family has a long history in Woodstock. And she says, I'm going to create a Woodstock Poetry Festival. I want to come on your show. And my first thought, as I said, that was Woodstock Poetry Festival, an- another <laughs> project that's not going anywhere, you know, because everyone, everyone's doing a Woodstock project. Yeah. Right? But Lori has a presence. And um, I, I said, you know, she, she'll probably pull it off. And she did. And um, so she flew in like, you know, poet laureates and, uh, oh, you remember, oh, God, I'm, I'm having a senior moment. Mm. She brought in that the great poet, writer, philosopher, um, oh, <sighs> Iron John. Google Iron John. Uh, I, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. He's he's an incredible speaker. Uh-huh. One of the most dynamic speakers I've ever heard. Uh. And brilliant guy. Uh, I think it was Iron John with Bill with with Bill Moyers. Iron John. 
I think it's Iron John. I thought it was Professor Irwin Corey. <laughs> well, that's he's a whole other story. He's, he's <laughs> in many ways. Anyway, so, mm-hmm. and then she sends me the schedule, and I see William Irwin Thompson's on the schedule. I said, how'd you get him? She said, he's writing poetry now. He wants, you know, and so we got to meet him and have him on the show. Uh-huh. I'm going to read a little essay from him. Who, who, I can't believe my senior brain. Fabulous psychologist, writer, speaker. And you and Studio Stu mellowed him out. Oh, oh I'd be I, Robert oh, Bly. Robert Bly. Oh, I was going to say that. Yeah, but Robert <laughs> Bly. yeah, me too. You're too busy thinking about the cat whacking the dog on the head. <laughs> yeah, I can't get yeah. that image out of my yeah. head. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Um, <laughs> so, Robert Bly, you want to talk about a speaker. Yeah. Commanding an audience, right? But he's known to be. Um, Robert Bly was known to be brilliant and a little cranky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and now somehow we get him to agree or somebody else got to him and said, yep. come on, you know, this show and promote the Poetry Festival because he was going to be one of the main speakers. And he agreed to show up early on a Sunday morning. Right. And I said to <laughs> Gus and your studio Stu is coming in then. I said, guys. Robert Bly is going to be coming in. He may be a little cranky. Uh, I don't think his when he thought of his wish list of things to do on an early Sunday morning was schlepping to this show. Right. Okay? And that was seeing my, us, too. Seeing us. So I figured, you know, I said, do your best. I said, don't, don't get upset if he's a little aggressive and assertive and this and that. So Bly comes in the studio, and he's like a pussycat. Right. right? And we have this great thing. And after the show, I said, Gus, what did you do? <laughs> well, we spoke. <laughs> you, uh, you, you, in studio took him down to uh, get coffee in, in the yeah, kitchen. And you see, and we you were gave, light, and we were just enjoying ourselves. And you, 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 you gave him a little Woodstock vibe, right. mellowed him right yeah, out. Yeah, we actually played behind him, which was I yeah. never thought would happen. Yeah. Brilliant guy, just a, whoa, what a speaker. Well, he was a poet laureate, right? Yes. Well, I don't know if he's poet laureate, but he, he, um, he was one of our country's top poets. And thinkers mm-hmm. and speakers, yeah. no question about it. Yeah. So then there's Bill Thompson, and we we got him for two hours. It was amazing. Um, the talk he gave at the Kleinert was filled to capacity when people heard Bill Thompson's coming to Woodstock. Just a brilliant guy. Well, I found an essay of his that, of course, was brilliant. Called "It's Already Begun." This was written. Uh, back in the 1990s, winter, hang, hang on, originally published 1985-86, even earlier. Mm-hmm. I just love the way he writes and thinks. Here we go. This is back in the 80s. We live in a culture we do not see. We don't live in industrial civilization. We live in planetization. What we see as the present is really the past. Interestingly... Marshall McLuhan's, one of his famous in, insights, quips, quotes was, we look at life through a rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. This is why politicians do very well, particularly Republicans, when they talk nostalgically. It's what got Reagan elected. He was a great storyteller about the great past. Okay? There was no great past. All right? The past was great and horrible, as is the present. All right? But nostalgia is a beautiful lie that we tell ourselves. At any rate... <laughs> 
What we see as the present is really the past. What we envision as the future is actually the present. Mm. We don't see it because the artifacts, things, institutions, ideas, artifacts are things we create. To reflect our activity are basically appearances, as McLuhan would say in the rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. Our response to seeing time is to recapitulate passionately a miniaturized expression of the past. <laughs> Let me repeat that because it's so yep. freaking true. Yep. He doesn't use freaking in here. That was me. <laughs> Our response to seeing time is to recapitulate passionately a miniaturized expression of the past and then say farewell to all that past by reperforming it for ourselves. <laughs> Stuck in the rearview mirror. And he picks the perfect example of this. I'm just going to ask for like 10, 20 seconds. Think about a place in the United States you can go to, which perfectly captures, for good and for bad, what Bill's talking about here. A miniaturized version of the past that we assume is the present. Disneyland. Ah. Disney World. The perfect example. So you know all this when you go to Disneyland. When you walk in, you don't see what is really going on. You don't see Disney World or Disneyland as an expression of a civilization of play in which all the cultures of the world are miniaturized and turned into artifacts, no longer a literate society with abstraction triumphs and defines the nature of the... He, okay. <laughs> um, you see the marvelous soda fountain. You see the clip-clop horses, the lovely old streetcar, the gartered sleeve, the straw hat, the whole sentimentalization... Did I get the right? Sentimentalization of the past so that you think you're in a small town of traditional American rural values. God, apple pie, ice cream, the flag, and the rest of it. <laughs> I hate Disney. Oh, I threw things at those statues when I went through there. Let me tell you something. I've never, I've never entered that place. And if I ever do, kill me. Yeah, I got arrested for choking one of those dolls. <laughs> Hester and I actually went there, and we, we went out of a, a wrong door, and we uh -oh. uh, went into a part of Disney World that you're not supposed to see. There were, like, trucks and people working behind the scenes, and, and they uh, got upset, and they, like, threw us out quickly. Uh -oh. Well, I'll give you my—I've told the story before, and we had Mark Elliott as a guest many times. Uh -huh. We wrote the, the first book ever with anything negative to say about Disney, mm. and Disney squashed the book. <laughs> but they didn't realize Mark was as tough as they were, and he got it republished. But anyway, we'll get to that <laughs> uh -huh. in a second. <laughs> so Bill's point is that Disneyland is one of the reasons, and it's brilliant. I hate it, but it's brilliant. And it's brilliant is because of what Bill understands about the human brain, which is, and Disney understood about the human brain, which is, if you can miniaturize the past in a nostalgic way, you'll become very rich. Mm -hmm. Because... That's where we want to go. Why? Because we don't want to deal with the present. <laughs> mm. Why deal with the present when you can make up uh, a false version, a, a Hallmark card version of the past? Why? Why would you bother? Wow. It's a lot of reasons. But anyway, yep. <laughs> we go on. Uh, Bill Thompson, the essay is called It's Already Begun. The Planetary Age is an Unacknowledged Daily Reality. And it's published in something called the Context Institute online so context institute context 
org. It's already begun, William Irwin Thompson. Um, okay. The reality we are living in remains largely unconscious, but we acknowledge it by grabbing back onto sentimental things of the past. Look at the birth of modernism in 1500. At this time, the knight and the church father are losing their power, and the artist and the banker are beginning to create the structure of the modern world. It's so brilliant because we were taught falsely, oh, the Renaissance, that was all about Michelangelo and art. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was. It was also a great, a whole new philosophy called humanism, and it was also about the creation of the banking system. Right. Mm. You don't. You can't separate these things. It's yin and yang. They go together. At any rate, <clears throat> at this time, the knight and the church father are losing their power. The artist and the banker are beginning to create the structure of the modern world. This is back in the Renaissance with the new technology of communication called the postal system. Yet while people are doing this, they are replaying the Middle Ages. All the heavy armor we associate with the Middle Ages isn't from the Middle Ages. It's from the 15th century King Arthur, who didn't dress like that, right? So when we think of King Arthur, <laughs> we think of knights in shining armor. Mm-hmm. Well, Bill Thompson's a great historian, and he understands. It's not accurate. <laughs> As he says, <clears throat> um, all the heavy armor that we associate with the Middle Ages isn't from the Middle Ages. It's from the 15th century. King Arthur didn't dress like that. He dressed like a savage with a leather hide for armor. So everything we see as our image of medievalism is the swan song, the sunset effect, the farewell phenomenon of medievalism, which has its most intense energizing in the period uh, of the Renaissance, right when capitalism, capitalist agriculture, the role of the artist, the role of print, the role of postal services, all those new informational technologies are disintegrating feudalism and the church and replacing them with the bank, the nation state, and the institutions of industrialism. <laughs> How brilliant is this guy? <laughs> All of those things are the world we have been living with from about 1500 to now. When in its consummate expression, in Atlantic industrial civilization, values can be quantitatively measured. Everything has mass, volume, force, and a certain physical celebrative power of its own presence. Now that it's all gone, our response is to artifactualize, to sentimentalize, to perform conservatism as ways of saying goodbye to it. That was Reagan. Mm. Reagan never talked about the present. He always talked about the past as he and his cohorts, Democrats along with Republicans, were stealing from the middle class by changing the tax code. Hello, <laughs> like every good musician, every good magician, sleight of hand. Mm. Um, in the emerging planetary world, what counts can't be counted, and you don't have a world of objects that are separated in space. Wealth and mansions here and dioxin dumps over there. You have a world of interpenetrating presences. You have a world in which consciousness is imminent in matter, and matter isn't separate. Very complicated esoteric stuff, but what he's getting at here is anticipating the World Wide Web, which came in the early 1990s. Mm and computer technology, which is connecting us in ways that were never done before. And when human beings get connected, you have two things happening at once. Mostly a lot of chaos, confusion, and disorientation (laughs) until we adapt to it, and some true 
Renaissance insights. Renaissance is a rebirth. Okay, you can't have a rebirth without a death. The death is the swan song. So what he's pointing out is what's true today as it was back then, which is most of what we're going to read, most of what we're going to hear, most of what most people are thinking is about the past because we don't want to deal with the present. Hmm. Those willing to take a look at what's actually happening are going to sound like futurists. <laughs> and the, the, when he says we're shifting in consciousness, and most of it unseen, it's still unseen, but more visible now than when Bill wrote this back in 1985-1986. We take it for granted that every human, virtually, not every, but the vast majority of human beings on this planet have access to computers. We need to get more people access, but most people have it. And that means we're all connected. And that wreaks havoc. <laughs> And it also is planting the seeds of the next renaissance. Mm -hmm. But we were taught such an oversimplistic version of the last renaissance that it was, oh, this flourishing of the arts and everybody was, everything was. It was funded by the Medicis who were cutthroat, murderous <laughs> politicians. <laughs> but we have to give them credit for funding the renaissance. Right. They loved art. They also like killing people who disagreed with them politically, but okay, not everybody's perfect. Um, <laughs> and remember, in the flowering Renaissance, Galileo, who basically was the pioneer of organizing what was suddenly this thing called science, mm. <laughs> where the philosophy of humanism that emerged out of the Renaissance after the dark middle ages when you were not allowed to think in any way other than the church allowed it otherwise you were excommunicated or killed now there was a celebration of the individual human mind having the right to and the ability to explore the world for itself and not just accept what it's told and you look at our educational system in the 21st century and it's still too much kids being um, honored with good grades by doing what they're told. <laughs> so um, there was this there was this rise of the individual mind, which was true in ancient Greece and a lot of ancient Asian cultures, but it disappeared, was squashed in the Middle Ages, the medieval ages. Um, but Galileo, the first great organized scientist during the Renaissance, was under house arrest the end of his mm -hmm. life. Yeah. You can't <laughs> say that. <laughs> wait, wait, wait a minute. I mean, for, we're, the first thing people are having trouble with is that the earth, that the earth, that the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. That freaked everybody out. Sure. So, there's always a freak out period. <laughs> we're witnessing it right now because we're now a planetary culture, as Bill Thompson says, like it or not. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, the ravages of industrial... Listen, we all benefit from industrialism. We have a lot of comforts. We have our smartphones. We have our thermostats. Uh, but we also have climate change and pollution, etc. We also have, you know, we talk about a real problem, which is that computerization robots are taking over a lot of industrialized jobs, Right. 
okay, that's going to force us to create new jobs, which maybe aren't as brain deadening as working an assembly line. Well, an assembly line took away jobs. An assembly line took away originally, because yeah, sure. you know, it took fewer people to put the car together because there were assembly lines. So we need the Bill Thompsons here in the emerging planetary world. All right, one of the prophets who was first sensitive to the shift was Charles Dickens, when who wrote a book which most people now know only through television, Hard Times. It was a study of those immigrants who came from Ireland and the North to Manchester and Birmingham and had to work in the social Darwinism of get on the bus or get out of the way. He studied with a great deal of intensity the people who had no sense that anything was of value that couldn't be weighed or measured and studied the rise of economics taking over from all the other forms of knowledge and value. Economics became the governing science of the modern world, and Dickens was very sensitive to the shift from religion to economics. But, as well as discussing the rise of industrial classes, he also studied a weird group of people who formed a special kind of community. The way in which you belonged to this community was not fitting if you were a misfit. You fit. It was a community in which there was a closeness to animals and a shocking exposure of the body. They would show a lot of thigh. It was the community of play. It was, in other words, the circus. Hmm. Um, the circus was like pre-industrial culture gathered up as it was about to disappear, miniaturized, compressed, and imaginatively celebrated. In pre-industrial culture, people lived with, lived with, had a kind of intimacy with animals. So the horses and all the rest were brought back. This was a culture of nature in which the body was part of the reproductive cycle and was accepted. And so for Victorians, the shocking exposure of thigh was tolerated. It's not the way we were taught <laughs> about the Victorian age. <laughs> really. um, and he's bringing this up because it's happening now. Different form, same process. Um, the new always shocks until <laughs> we adapt to it. Mm -hmm. That's the role of the artist in many ways, to shock. Some are successful at it. Some are discarded by history for it. Picasso shocked. Yep. And today it's kind of shocking to think that Picasso was shocking. Right. <laughs> um, I'll just continue. Um, so what you now have with that Southern California world, Californicating the entire world, this was, it, it was in California in the 70s where you had, Alan Watts was hanging out and Buckminster Fuller and William Irwin Tom, all these incredible people integrating and, and seeing the, the present for what it was, mm -hmm. which sounded like the future. Um, so now you have with that Southern California world, Californicating the entire world is a radical shift in consciousness in which you comfort people by performing the past and affirming it so that you can ease the transition into a radical new consciousness. Because if people really had it too fast, there would be an even worse kind of fundamentalist reaction of whatever variety around the world you want to point to. Brilliant. So in other words, what he's saying is the value that nostalgia has is it calms, it's like a vaccination. It calms people down. It's like a vaccination against the huge changes that are taking place. Look in the rearview mirror and pretend that instead of what's taking place is taking place, that the world is like Disney World. 
<laughs> or a Hallmark card or whatever else you hang on to from the past. Mm. And um, again, there's nothing wrong with nostalgia in small doses, but in large doses, it blinds us to what's happening. And what's happening, and Bill Thompson's not the first one to say it, and not the last, is a shift in consciousness from the industrial age to the age of planetization, yeah. the age of integration. That's, it's, it's not an accident. I mean, immigration has always been a huge issue, as Dickens knew. But why was Trump's first big thing the wall? Because the first thing the brain does, all of our brains does, when it can't deal with the present, is to build a wall and keep, the, keep, the, keep what we don't like out. Uh, despite the fact that the, that the United States is what it is because of immigrants. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Okay, come on. That's just, yeah. So if you're going to be nostalgic about the past, you can't be against immigration. <laughs> anyway, we, think? we diverge a little bit. Um, our great friend and street philosopher Patrick Carlin is on hiatus for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. He will be back with us. And um, we are headed towards hour two, which means we can't believe we just killed the whole hour of radio. (laughs) But in the second hour, here's what we think is going to happen. We are going to have some great music. The Sultan of Sonics, August, is live in our studio for the first time in almost a year. And... We are going to be talking on the phone with two great musicians, uh, Woodstock legendary musician Larry Campbell, his wife, great singer in her own right, folk country, blues, gospel, Teresa Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been married for decades, but only recently decided to tour. Well, it's about the music, about them, and we'll talk about that. And uh, Dr. Mindy Shaw will be back with us uh, on the phone. She's a child psychologist and has written a new book about ways that, more effective ways that parents can communicate with children in this age of pandemic and virtual reality and all that. Uh, Plus, we leave room for surprises because they Mm. will find us. Love is blind. 